listening to The Edge, everything bass fishing, coming to you worldwide from Megawind Keelguard Studios. Aaron, uh, first to kick this episode off, I want to thank you for the uh, box of chocolates. What a great surprise. Felt the love there on Valentine's. So uh, I, I still got goosebumps, man. Thanks. I know. I, I just could not resist. Um, <laughs> you know, there is a surprise one in there. You'll figure it out when you go to the bathroom of which one you actually ate that had the surprise <laughs> in it. Um, so, yeah, happy to do that. And, you know, it, it's Valentine's Day. We're, we're on it the back side of that. And, of course, what colors match Valentine's Day better than Megaware? The black and the red, right? And uh, of course, every single episode brought to us by Megaware and uh, just so many great products. All of that good stuff can be found at keelguard.com. First do-it-yourself keel protector, the battery guard, which is uh, all these batteries that are getting put in the boat now, Kurt. That's that's liable to be a pretty large part of their business. That is a good investment they made a couple years ago to launch that product, a product that does a fantastic job and is so important with the batteries and yeah. specifically the lithium, lithium batteries. I was going to so say. expensive, uh, man. They yeah. need that cushion. There's a lot of parts inside that thing. So, uh, man, Aaron, I got to say, here we are, Feb 15. We already have winners in all the national tours. You got the Pro Circuit winner a couple weeks ago. Now you've got an Elite Series winner. You've got a uh, Bass Pro Tour winner, uh, you know, about five days ago. So lots of winners already on the horizon. We've got a classic qualifier through the Kissimmee Bassmaster Open Division. And uh, whoa, dude, it's like here we are, Feb 15, and we're a full freaking throttle. Some, so, uh, somebody flipped the light switch. Oh, absolutely. It flipped quick. And uh, you can't get away from competitive bass fishing right now. If you're into it, there's plenty going on and plenty more to come. That's for sure. Um, before we get into some of those conversations and uh, picking up some of that on our on our future episodes here, Aaron, let's talk quickly. I heard Diana mumbling a little bit, maybe some grumbling over some swim bait purchases you jumped on here. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's got that alert on her uh, debit card where, you know, <laughs> a large transaction comes through and it, and it pings her card to make sure it's not fraud. And she'd been uh, rung up. She yeah. was like, "No, this is definitely fraud." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it didn't help that it was KGB. So it's like, "What are you involved in now?" And I've got to thank all the guys I travel with, uh, fishing the the Oak Outdoors and the you know BFLs and all of that. But yeah, Chris Bunk, Matt Ells, all those boys kind of have turned me now into this swim bait underground deal. To it's a cult, dude. I'm telling you, it is a cult. And you know, my swim bait fishing, Kurt, I love throwing a swim bait, but most of them, I, I will tell you, have been kind of in the with the Kytec, the, you know, just the soft swim bait, th those kinds of things. Well, now I ended up ordering some of uh, these glide baits and yeah, the hard bait. Yeah, yeah, the hard now baits, you're, man. now you're into the dollars. Yeah. I, I'm like, how can I tie on something that's cost $250 and go out there and chuck it where I like to throw it around trees and that. So anyway, <laughs> I'm going to see if I can have you come up and, and get your scuba certification in case I tie one up in a tree, you can go down and get it for me. Well, I will I will definitely do that. I'll also be awaiting those big bass photos with uh, the success that you're going to have on those swim baits. Well, man, too. I hope so. Like I said, I, I have not uh, – this is going to be my first go at this kind of stuff and using these kind of swim baits. But I'm excited. I, I really do love throwing them. I know a lot of guys – uh, you know, really catch them on it. And uh, so we'll see. Time will tell, right? Well, everybody's going to have to continue to stay tuned on to uh, our Bass Edge Instagram page and, and Facebook page. And we'll be giving some updates on the swim bait 
Chronicles of of Aaron Martin. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah. Otherwise, they might all wind up in a case shadow box on the wall, you know. Instead of having a fish mounted, I'll just put expensive swim baits up there. Maybe we'll add a tab to the Bass Edge website. You know, it'll be the uh, garage sale tab. We'll have uh, fantastic swim baits, fifty percent off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that might be a good idea. We should add a tab to the site. There's so many great tabs already. Awesome articles, some great videos that we posted for years. So encourage everybody to check out that. And that your Bass signature Edge series, Richardson 112. That is correct. Don't forget the apparel. We got some great apparel on there. And, uh, well, you know, we're just always doing fun stuff here. That's what we do at Bass Edge. We do fun stuff. And uh, maybe leading into some more fun stuff, we're going to have a uh, protecttheharvest.com tackle tip coming your way right now. And right after that, we're going to continue this uh seg b 2022 kind of uh continuation of new guests with new insights to things all bass fishing bass fishing archives it's gonna be a fun conversation too y'all stay tuned we'll be right back with more bass entry this episode's protecttheharvest.com tackle tip with mlf bass pro tour angler dakota ebear all right, guys, talk a little about winter cranking today. You know, my thing is that, like, I want to imitate a certain type of forage, right? So if I'm going down, let's say, a section of rip route, you know, I'm going to be imitating a, a crawfish there. If it's cold, I may not be cranking really fast, right? I might be kind of slowing down, just kind of crawling that crankbait through there. But here, like maybe at Raver, a place maybe where I'm trying to imitate a gizzard shad, right? I'm throwing a 6XD, I'm throwing a bigger profile bait. I'm not really concerned as much about the depth as I am, you know, the uh, the size of the bait that I'm trying to imitate. So the other thing to take into consideration is that a lot of people really think about cranking in the wintertime, you want to like slow down, right? Fish are kind of lethargic. Well, there's a portion of a group of fish that really just key in on thinking on gizzard shad a lot of times. Those gizzard shad are very quick moving fish. They move fast, they never stop moving. So I'm gonna be burning that crankbait, you know, in those type situations. Even when it's super cold, I'm still gonna be burning that crankbait to get those reaction bites. You just gotta fill out the situation. Every day's a little bit different. And, uh, you know, but cranking in cold weather conditions can be really, really, really efficient. Uh, you just got to figure out, you know, where kind of forage you're trying to imitate, what kind of structure you're fishing, and then go from there and make the adjustments and you have a lot of success doing it. Great tip, Dakota. Brought to you by ProtectTheHarvest.com. First by land and now by sea. For years, Lucas Oil has been a staple in high-performance vehicles on both the road and track. Now, from the makers of Lucas Oil comes Lucas Marine products, specifically engineered for marine applications. Protect and lubricate your marine inboard, outboard, or high-performance boat with Lucas Marine Engine Oil or Lucas Synthetic-Based Oil. Learn more about the complete line of Lucas Oil and marine products. Visit lucasoil.com. Nitro Performance Bass Boats. Get pro-level performance with the Nitro Z18, the official boat of Major League Fishing. The Z18, with its nimble handling and versatility, sports many of the features in the larger boats in the line, like a Guardian Livewell, a heavily insulated cooler, dual 8-foot rod storage, and our smooth and fast NVT hull. Every Nitro boat is laid out to do one thing very well, catch fish. 
Enormous front decks up to 45 square feet on the Z21 allow maximum mobility when battling unruly bass and feature low-profile gunnels for ease of skipping, pitching, flipping, or landing fish. Nitro Performance Bass Boats, pure fishing machines. This is a pretty cool deal. I believe more people need to enjoy, and quite frankly, many anglers probably aren't even aware that this site exists. Bass Fishing Archives. It's www.bass-archives.com. The source for bass fishing history, basically, in my opinion. And I was lucky enough to meet Terry Battisti through a mutual friendship many, many years ago, and he's compiled some serious bass fishing history Awesome to have him as a special guest on this episode. Welcome to Bass Edge, Terry. Thank you. I appreciate it, Kurt. Yeah, it's been a while since we talked, hasn't it? It's been a long time. Last time we chatted, you were on the west side. Now you're over there in Tennessee. So a lot of things have changed for sure. Yeah, yeah. I was in Idaho. And back in 2013, I moved from Idaho to North Carolina. And now I'm I'm in Tennessee now. So nice to be in the east. Wow. More centralic bass fishing history, maybe in that area too, right? Oh, it's the yeah, it's the cradle of bass fishing here. You know, Absolutely. North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama. I mean, you can't get much closer to where it was born out of. So yeah, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and you know, speaking of that nucleus, Terry, I, I now understand where Kurt gets all of his data and all of the archives to talk about things. Here, I just thought he was smart, but he has this, you know, source of you that, uh, for some reason, I didn't even know existed. But I do want to ask, when did this begin, and kind of what exactly, I guess, drove your passion for bass fishing history? Well, I've been kind of a nerd uh, my whole life. I grew up in a tackle store. I started working there when I was 14. I started going in there way before that. And it was an old school private owner tackle store where all the sticks from around the area would come in. And I'm talking Mike Folkstad and Don Iavino and Rip Nunnery. I'm, I'm talking old Western studs. And I just love to sit around and listen to the stories that these guys had, like Rip Nunnery's 15 fish limit that went 98 pounds, 15 ounces that he caught out of Eufaula in 1969 for a Bassmaster event. That'll never be broken. Well, those fish were in the tackle store that I worked at. Um, So it was like 1978 when I worked there, but Bob's has been open since 76 and did a lot of real repair, rod repair. And uh, so there was a lot of old stuff around and I just fell in love with it. And I kind of guess I geek out on it ever since, you know, it's just uh, part of me, <laughs> so to say. So that that's how I, I got into the history. And then back, I don't know, Pete Robbins is the one that, that kind of uh, ruined this for me. Then, Pete, then has, Pete is how we connected too, right? So, yeah, so it yeah. kind of all comes full circle right here for, for yeah, you and I. Exactly. <laughs> so Pete and I meet on the internet, you know, a nice romance there, uh, in 1997 <laughs> or 1998 on the Bass Fishing uh, homepage. And at that time, I had a hand pork company, and we just developed this friendship. Well, I started writing in 2000. I got him into writing in about 2003 or 2004 on a national basis. And he knew that I grew up in the West, and I had Western ties and history, you know, and all that stuff. And he kept bugging me to write a book. And it's like, yeah, no, dude, I don't want to write a book because I'm going to leave someone out or I'm going to leave something out. Someone's going to get pissed off. You're bound by the two covers, the front cover and the back cover, and there's no way to ever go back in and and put something else in it. So I, you know, kind of poo-pooed that. Finally, uh, I was about 2010, I was down in my basement moving some stuff around and I found a 1974 California Lunker Club 
newsletter that had been given to me in the early, early 80s by Rip Nunnery. And I was like, holy crap, I stopped at what I was doing. I read the 24-page newsletter cover to cover. I went to work the next day. I scanned it. I sent to Pete. And the only words in the email were, you need to do a history of the Western United States bass fishing deal. He, he started prodding you again immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's poking me. He's, he's right. really good at that. It's like, dude, you don't understand. To write a book, you're just you're putting yourself in a corner. So it was literally maybe a month later, I was down in Alabama uh, in Huntsville working and uh, I had dinner with Alan Clemens and Clemens evidently had been talking to Pete. And so the whole dinner time, Alan's bugging me about doing this. And, (laughs) you know, it's like, guys, leave me alone. And I get back to the hotel that night. Clemens calls me up and says, why don't you do a blog? And then it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And so between Late 2010, 2011, uh, you know, kind of putting it together in my mind. I told Pete and Alan that I would only do it if they would help me. Um, there you go. Just snap right back <laughs> on them. <laughs> exactly. And then by the end of 2011, I was starting to get the website, you know, all the domain names and all that stuff done. And uh, come March 2012, we launched. And, uh, of course, Clemens backed out. Uh, but it was Pete and I. And, <laughs> Thrown under the yeah. bus immediately. I love it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You hear that, Alan? Um, anyway, yeah, we ran it and, and it was it was going good. And then in 2013, I left Idaho and I went to work for the Department of Defense in North Carolina. And they didn't like it. They didn't like me having an internet presence. They didn't like me having a social media presence. Uh, and I fought them for two years. And finally, in 2015, I had some other things happen happen and uh, not just my employer bothering me to get off. And I just walked away from it in mid-2015. Different obstacles in life occur, yes. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I think, Kurt, you know who I used to work for, so, you know. (laughs) Anyway, so in 2020, it was like June or July 2020, I get a random call from Pete and uh, he says, hey, um, the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame wants you to start the website up again. And at that point, I had left North Carolina. Um, I was now back working for the Department of Energy, and I had time, and I had an employer that didn't care if I was, you know, on Facebook or Twitter or right, what right. have you. Super. And cool. uh, and here we are. Here we are. Yeah, and here we are. Yeah. yeah. So it worked out. You know, just that six, seven years span in between there just killed me uh, with respect to people knowing who the heck I am. It's funny how how some of these things work. Uh, you know, it's similar to anglers, right? Like Aaron and I, how we connected and and uh, you know through Bass Edge, and it was a TV show, and then just things just continue to morph. It's very similar to this particular website, and and uh, this cool thing in the sport of bass fishing is that, uh, you know, it comes out of a thought process and then it takes a couple years to get things, you know, as you might say, engineered or, to, or together. And then yeah. now somebody grabbed the hold of, hey, we really need this in the sport. You know, you kind of get this backing with the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame. And uh, now we're it's at a whole new level that maybe before we could have never been at. So it's uh, that that's why it's super cool. And I, and I wanted to make sure we brought this to more people's attention, Terry. I mean, you just 
get lost in this website, in my opinion. You know, you start seeing some of the old ads and, and a lot of the old articles. And and uh, I know you got another writer or two that, that helps you through, you know, getting some things together on, on here or that they've written it in the past. And it's just crazy interesting. Let's talk about some of those articles real quick. You post up on the site. Um, uh-huh. Do you have a little bit of background of how you come in contact with some of these old pieces? And secondarily, do you have a favorite that you'd like to just kind of shed some quick light here on the podcast to kind of draw people in to give them an idea of the uh, content on the site? Yeah, so every article on the site, I would say 99% of them are written by me and my partner, Brian Waldman. Brian's a geek out of Indiana. And there was one thing about Pete, Brian, and I is that, and more so Pete and Brian, they're like rain men when it comes to bass fishing data. Um, I mean, it's <laughs> like just, he's, it's they're insane. like Ken Duke also, right? Yeah, he's another oh, yeah. rain man. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and, and Duke will write, throw something our way every once in a while, but we don't copy, you know, articles out of Bassmaster or one of the old magazines and post them to the website. We do the research based on those magazines and old books and stuff like that. And then we write our own one-off articles describing this stuff. And so, for example, uh, where do I get these ideas from? I have every issue of Bassmaster ever published. Okay. That's starting from the spring of 1967. And if you want to see me go through that issue, I actually have a deal worked out with Bassmaster. I videoed it and recorded it and put it on our YouTube channel. So we'll talk about that a little bit later, maybe. Okay, cool. But yeah, I have every issue of Bassmaster, every issue of InFisherman, every issue of Fishing Facts Magazine, a whole lot of uh, catalogs. Like I'm looking at my uh, Garcia Fishing Annuals here from 1965 to 1979. You talk about all sorts of other industry catalogs and Bass Pro Shops and I mean, I have it all. My library's got eight five-foot bookcases in it, and they're all filled, and I have a whole bunch of boxes in the center of the room still. But, you know, yeah, it's crazy. So, you know, what I try to do is I try to take a year at a time. I'll go through all the magazines I have for, for that year. I'll go through the catalogs that I have for that year, and I'll research multiple subjects. And I'm trying to put it up there kind of chronologically in some cases, you know, so it makes some sense and, and, and things like that. But when it comes to like my favorite series of articles that I've done, it has to be the birth of flipping and the birth of the flipping stick. To me, that is the most comprehensive article ever written on how flipping was developed. And then also there's a kind of an offshoot series uh, on the birth of the flipping stick because the flipping stick was built specifically for Thomas and the, what he was doing. And the design of that blank has never been duplicated to this day. Right, right. Um, You're talking about so, D. Thomas, the the uh, the father of yes. flipping and pitching that grew up out there on the Delta. Again, you know, kind of mm-hmm. tapping into your, your West Coast roots there, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's four articles on flipping itself. The first one is an article titled, I believe, is a, a new concept in fishing, uh, controlled structure fishing is what Thomas initially called it in that original 1974 California Lunker Club newsletter that I had that got this whole thing started. And um, so he called it Controlled Structure Fishing. So that was the name of the first one. And then I had a three-part series where I interviewed Thomas, Dave Myers, who was working for Fenwick at the time that him and Thomas developed the flipping stick, Uh, interviewed Gary Klein, Basil Bacon, Hank Parker, and Denny Brower. I tried to get a hold of Glebe at the time, um, but I couldn't. I couldn't track him down because D. Thomas took it the Bull Shoals in '75. Glebe took it 
uh, and, and then D never went back east again. Uh, but Glebe went and just destroyed everybody uh, in 76, 77, 78, 79. I mean, he made three or four classics uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, all on flipping when still nobody was doing it. Right. Then there's uh, a couple of articles on how the actual flipping stick was developed itself. So, you know, here's one technique and a whole bunch of different pieces written on you know talking about how the, how that whole technique in the rod was put together i love it i gotta check that whole thing out i haven't looked at that piece yet so uh that's awesome i like i like cool. it <laughs> <laughs> hey, yes yeah, i mean just go and use the search function and type in flipping and it'll all come up right there at your fingertips you know terry the content of the site is so diverse i mean so much stuff on there and it, and it's just been really really exciting for me to not only read and, and follow the site but then get to talk with you in person to learn about the site and I, I certainly look forward to visiting it more frequently but quickly before we go what is kind of the site address and do you provide social media alternative as well can you kind of give us all things uh bass archives of how people can stay up to speed with what you've got going on yeah no problem first off i want to thank you and kurt for for having me on this morning i mean this, this is awesome uh, yeah, appreciate absolutely. what you guys are doing and but yeah with respect to the site so the the website again can be found at bass-archives.com and we're posting between five and seven new pieces a week usually in the morning at 6 30 is when a new post will launch and then uh thursday and friday we're doing like a throwback thursday like everybody does and a friday finale those are two kind of shorts Saturday is uh, what we're aiming for video-wise. Video will drop on YouTube, and then that automatically gets fed to the website. And then Sunday, we kick off the week again with uh, another full feature. And then we have not just the YouTube channel. We have Instagram, and I try to post at least once a day on that, usually by the end of the week. We've hit it five times that week. And what we're doing is we're taking the pictures from the articles that we posted that week and posting them onto Instagram. You'd be amazed at how many people look at Instagram and don't go to the website or don't know about the website. So that's how we're handling that to try to drive people from Instagram to go read the site. And then that's, we have Facebook. Go ahead. I was going to say that's probably one of the coolest things is that you're taking all this history, putting it available on all these different types of, you know, current obvious platform, you know, whether it's website mm -hmm. or Facebook or Instagram and, and YouTube, you know, and, and I've seen yeah. some of these YouTube videos and it's cool how you kind of dive a little bit deeper in, into some of these things. Obviously reading is one way, but then visual just watching YouTube. It's a totally different approach. And, and I think that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. I wanted to mention my favorite aspect of the site, Terry, is the gimmick bass tackle. <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's a super cool piece. I saw this, uh, this spinning rod that basically was formulated out of a uh, pistol grip, which anybody, you know, in the 70s know that that was the grip that we all, you know, that a lot of people started <laughs> with was the pistol grip. And uh, they turned yeah, that into a freaking spinning rod handle. I was like, what? And uh, obviously it didn't take off, right? <laughs> yeah, there's just sometimes uh, some things that come through your mind you shouldn't put on paper and, and, and <laughs> even develop. I mean, it's just it's crazy. It is, um, cool. especially because it was like a full page ad. That was even the best. <laughs> oh, and the, the, the crazy thing is, is that, I mean, that ad was in every single magazine for almost two years. 
And yeah, I just don't get it. <laughs> okay, yeah. man, this has been fun. It, it's great to go back through, look at a lot of these things again. Bass fishing archives, the history of bass fishing online, available to you. So many touch points. Obviously, the website, the Instagram is just Bass Fishing Archives. If folks want to just search that on their Instagram account, it's Bass Fishing Archives. But Terry. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, any any final closing thoughts before we move on to our Lucas Oil Angler Spotlight section with Brock Mosley here in just a moment? Yeah, nothing, uh, guys. I just again, I really appreciate you having me on Bass Edge, and uh, you know, look forward to talking to you sometime soon, and maybe seeing you guys at the Classic. Absolutely, I, I will be there. So hopefully, I'll see you there, and uh, maybe we can catch up with Pete, and uh, maybe <laughs> Alan will show up too. It's not too far away, and yeah. we'll have a good little meeting there. That'd be awesome. So uh, sounds good, man. All right, everybody, stay tuned. Bass Edge Radio will be right back with Aaron and I, and we're going to go into the Lucas Oil Angler Spotlight. Hang tight. This is Evergreen Pro Staff Justin Kerr. This is MLF BPT Angler Jacob Wheeler. This is professional angler Denny Brower. I'm BASS Elite Series Angler of the Year Sass Fighter. This is BASS Elite Series Rookie of the Year Josh Strasner on Bass Edge Radio. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything else other than the original and toughest DIY keel protector for your boat, MegaWare Keel Guard? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our exclusive contoured edge and patented technology. MegaWare KeelGuard Keel Protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the longest-lasting, most dependable keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. Developed specifically by boat builders, offering the best keel protection in the industry. Also from MegaWare KeelGuard, SkegGuard, FlexStep Pro, and Pontoon Guard. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. MegaWare KeelGuard. And brother, I'm pumped today to feature an angler who's had what I would consider a hot hand over the last three seasons of the Bassmaster Elite Series. Seems Brock is punching the time clock consistently, and uh, he's become a regular in the check line. He's been flirting with an Elite Series win on several occasions the past two years as well. Glad to have on the show BASS Elite Series Pro, Brock Mosley. Thanks for being with us today on Bass Edge, Brock. Yeah, man, I appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, looking forward to being on the show with you guys. Well, like Kurt said, great to have you on here. Brock, since 2019, I mean, you have been extremely consistent in your Elite Series performances. Can you kind of break down or pinpoint if that's possible that moment or period of time that you know it just started clicking you kind of began to understand or become repetitive in a process that really has just I, I think almost created a kind of a comfort level and confidence for you you know I kind of went through the same thing growing up playing sports playing baseball I played you know all through junior high high school and uh, three years in college and I kind of went through the same thing every time I stepped up a level I mean you know I started starting varsity my freshman year of high school definitely my sophomore year and every time you know you bump up a level it would take me a little while to kind of get comfortable and um, fishing has been kind of no different from fishing weekend tournaments BFLs opens all the way to the elites you know it just kind of takes 
me a little bit of time to get comfortable. And, you know, with being on the elites, you know, getting learning how to practice uh, break down a, a body of water in two and a half days. And then, uh, you know, all the distractions that comes with it. Um, Kurt can tell you there's just a lot going on other than just catching fish. So Absolutely. it just took me a little time to just kind of get used to everything and uh, get comfortable. That's the best word for it. And then, uh, of course, you know, just growing as sponsors start to come along makes it easier less stressful and uh you know it's just been the last three years been good you know i'm getting kind of to my old self don't really see myself as a a winning type angler where i'm going to go win a bunch of tournaments but i try to base myself off of uh consistency and i want to be as consistent as possible well brock it seems like that consistently is providing some some opportunities for you to step on that podium you know winning some elite series events you've had several second place finishes now been in contention and and i know how how the game works even some events where you weren't quite there in the top 10 you knew you probably had a chance to win based on an adjustment or two a fish or two throughout you know a week of an event because there's so much as you say that goes on there man i I see you really as you mentioned through your baseball progression through the same thing in all of your stats from the open level to uh, once you got on the elite series and then i feel like that coming out party at the saint lawrence when you were jacking them on the ned rig was a big deal and that kind of led into some more confidence for you kind of really saw you beam in that event if it wasn't for kevin catching that six freaking pounder you know then you could have been the guy walking away with that elite win in that particular event i think that was in 2000 19 18 or 19 17 uh, you know that was a year that did a lot of good to my confidence right that was my second year on tour and uh kind of getting the hang of things and uh i actually had two seconds one was at st lawrence and then uh two events later i had another second to jason christie on lake st Clair. right and uh st Clair to me was a better opportunity for me to win because uh kevin ended up uh putting it to all of us at St. Lawrence that year. <laughs> right, he, right. I think he beat me by like seven pounds and I just beat right. everybody else. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it does a lot to, as a young angler to finish seconds, especially to Kevin Van Dam and to Jason Christie, two of which you can argue the best in the business. And, uh, sure. you know, that did a lot to my confidence and then it just continues to grow, you know, over the years. And, uh, you know, the more comfortable you get, the better you get at progressing things. Yeah, well, it, it seemed pretty obvious looking through the stats, right? I mean, through the 2019 season, after you kind of mentioned you you started getting that confidence, you made the classic in 2020, made the classic again in 2021, and, and had a pretty good finish there at uh, Lake Ray Roberts. So, in you know, outside of Dallas, now again you're coming up with another classic at Lake Hartwell in 2022 after another solid outing. You know, as far as a season perspective in 2000. 21. So where do you see as the next step in your process of this kind of competitive development that we've kind of established with your growth here? How do you feel like you can improve to take it up to the next notch? I know your buddies with Hank Cherry and, you know, you see him win some back-to-back classics and, you know, he's had some opportunities, other, other friends of yours on tour, you see them, you know, walking across the stage with a blue trophy. Where's Brock's next process of step in this competitive development that you see? You know, especially just being uh, a guy that used to play a lot of sports, you always start the season with goals. And uh, that's the same with bass fishing. And uh, the last few years, you know, my main goal to start the season is try to win Angler of the Year. And <laughs> unfortunately, St. John's River, uh, so to speak, kind of takes the bail in the away. side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very quickly. And uh, 
you know, in 2020, I think I finished fourth in the points and finished just 15 points out of Angle Deer. And, uh, you know, that's just due to one bad event at the St. John's River. And last year in 2021, kind of the same deal. I ended up 14th last year, but I had one other bad finish. And, uh, you know, one thing I have to do is figure out how to do away with those bad finishes. And, uh, Last year, especially, I had probably the best practice I've ever had the St. John's River. And then every year we have an off day because it's our first event of the year for media purposes. And everything got warm and everything changed and I just wasn't able to adjust. And for me to take that next step, that's just what I got to work on is how to prevent those bomb finishes. And that's kind of what I'm lacking. You know, I had, I think, four top tens last year on the elites and this wasn't good enough to get inside the top ten in points. And that's due to two bad finishes. And, uh, you know, for me as an angler, like I said earlier, I want to be as consistent as possible. And one thing I have to do is, like I said, be able to adjust quicker on some of those events. You know, last year was St. John's and Gunnersville, which is kind of odd because I usually, you know, I don't like do great at Gunnersville, but I usually do decent. And, uh, you know, I just never really figured anything out there. And that's just on me. And uh, main thing for my career goals you know, I want to angler the year. I want a classic trophy like everybody else. But I want to be one of those anglers when I retire that says I fished 12 to 15 Bassmaster Classics because there's, there's only a handful of anglers that do that, and uh, that's a special group to be a part of. And that's kind of where I want to see myself in 10, 15 years. The more you fish, the more chances you got to win, yeah. right? <laughs> that's a good goal. Yeah, you know, like I said earlier, I don't see myself as a winner if it happens. It, You know, it just happens. It's just one of them things that where everything falls into place. I have been close. You know, I think I've got four seconds on the elites now. And uh, every time it's just one of them deals where everything just kind of falls into place and, and kind of flows with it. And uh, I've always been the kind of angler that just kind of goes on the water and just kind of flows with it. You know, I don't necessarily find the best stuff on the lake that, you know, people find when they win. It's just, I just kind of go out there and go fishing every day. One thing I kind of picked up from Andy Morgan and uh, when I fished with him one time and, you know, he hasn't <laughs> won very much as far as tournament goes, but he's got a mantle full of angler deer trophies. <laughs> yes, he and, does. Uh, I yes, think I'll take those trophies over a blue one. You know, Brock, here we are kind of middle part of, of February. I know you spend a lot of time at a deer stand, and I think that kind of ended for you uh, a week or two ago. Just kind of curious, I you know, I also saw on your social media that you were able to pre-practice for your first couple of big events in 2022. Now that bass fishing is back in the primary focus, what techniques do you generally rely on early in the year to locate late winter pre-spawn bass there in your home state of Mississippi? You know, I always tell people to fish, you know, their strengths and one thing they're they're most confident in. And, you know, one thing I'm real confident in, no matter where I go across the country, whether it's here in Mississippi or even in New York, is throwing a chatterbait. And uh, especially these shallow Mississippi lakes where the fish kind of, they'll get pre-spawn mode here in the February and March and they'll start pulling up and uh we you know we have a lot of a lot of lily pad fields, a lot of grass clumps, uh stuff like that. And it's a good way to kind of cover water and uh to find those groups of fish. And that's one thing I like to do is uh throw chatterbaits, throw swim baits, stuff like that on these shallow flats here in Mississippi to kinda find these pre spawners and as they're moving up onto the bed. And uh you know, it can be a lot of fun 
the fish here in the south and especially Mississippi in February and March. Brock, you mentioned the shallow water angling there in Mississippi. Typically, you know, kind of really flat lakes, uh, lack of great contour changes. Um, actually, I would say, you know, real similar to Florida fishing there where the 22 Elite season is going to kick off once again. How will you identify fish and what they're going to relate to if they haven't really moved up to uh, shoreline cover yet? A lot of these Mississippi lakes are, are real shallow and, and, and real flat. And one thing these fish key on is ditches. You know, these ditches and creeks are their highways in and out of these uh, shallow backwaters. Because, you know, here where I'm from, we don't have a whole lot of clean water. So if you can find that little bit of clean water, that's generally where your fish are going to go try to spawn, especially if it's got a hard bottom. And paying attention to these ditches and uh, creeks, you know, it don't even have to be a a deep ditch, you know, just something that's maybe a six inch contour change, uh, just a little dip in the flat where these fish will go in and out. And that's one thing I like to key on that. And, and we have a lot of stumps and a lot of laydowns in the water. And that's kind of what the fish like to kind of stage on as they're pulling up, getting closer to that backwater to where the clean water is. They'll like to pull up on these stumps. You know, if you've got a ditch that's got stumps on the edge of it, which a lot of these around here do, man, that's going to be your key highway for them fish to move in and out and have a stopping point as they're making their way back to these clean waters to spawn. How does that, with the live sonar technology, are you able to use that much in shallow water to kind of, you know, locate some of these stumps, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 feet ahead of the boat and target them as you're kind of cruising down maybe a ditch that you're not real familiar with? Is that doable for you? Do you utilize that technology in that shallow water like that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing I like to do especially in shallow water is, you know, I'm a Garmin guy. I use live scope a lot. And one thing I do with my live scope is I won't keep my range a hundred feet out. Cause to me, if you got your range over 65, 70 feet on your live scope, it's hard to make an accurate cast, you know, past that kind of point. Right. And if I got that, my range on, you know, 65 or 70 and I can see a stump well, that stump's only 50 foot, you know, I can make an accurate cast 50 foot pretty consistently. And that's one thing I like to try to do, especially just easing my way through these creeks and ditches and drains that'll have that structure on the side of it. It don't matter if it's, you know, three or four foot, I can still see that stump ahead of me, you know, and make an accurate cast with my range, maybe not quite as far out as I would in, say, 18 to 20 foot deep water, you know, when I'll have it out to over 100 Sure. Great, great stuff. Great use of that technology. And uh, you always kind of hear some people shy about using it in, in shallower water. So it's great to hear coming from an expert like yourself that it's doing you a lot of good and putting some more fish in the boat. Aaron and Brock, let's put the power pole down for a quick pause in the action. Stand by. Bass Edge Radio will return with more from BASS Elite Series angler Brock Mosley. Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real-world punishment, the PowerPole is the ultimate shallow-water boat positioning tool. Swift, PowerPole deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent, PowerPole won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong currents or gusting winds in up to 8 feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. PowerPole, swift, silent, secure. Visit PowerPole.com to find a dealer near you. Bass Edge, presented in part by Mercury Marine, Go Boldly, returns with BASS Elite Series Angler Brock Mosley in the Lucas Oil Angler Spotlight. That's right, Lucas Oil High Performance Marine Products. Be sure to visit the BassEdge.com store for all things Lucas. It's 
works. Well, Brock, let's continue to dive in, discuss some of these pre-spawn fishing conditions, how you like to approach them. Specifically, let's get into the techniques and something that we talk a little bit about here on Bass Edge, which is speed. I think it's really important. want to hear your take on speed during this pre-spawn, you know, kind of behavioral pattern time frame, late winter pre-spawn. Do you find yourself as a speedster? kind of throwing that trolling motor on six, seven, or eight and ripping down the bank, covering lots of water, or do you tend to try to attack this time of year slower, you know, kind of a more methodical approach? And then what lures will help you achieve whichever decision you're making on style of speed that you're working your boat down in those typical areas? That's that's how I want to fish. (laughs) You know, I like to cover water and fish as fast as possible. But sometimes this time of year, you know, these pre-spawners, especially in Florida, that's not the way to go. It's always a great way to locate some fish, uh, but especially in Florida, they like it slow. Whether you're dragging a worm or throwing a Cinco, seems like the slower you present your bait, the better. And that kind of kills me. Like, <laughs> that's just, that's really hard <laughs> for me to do, even though it's the best thing to do. Now, me at home, you know, I, I like to cover water. Like you said, I'll keep my troll motor, you know, on five or six and just go. And, uh, throw in a chatterbait or a swim bait and just try to find those little pods of fish or groups of uh, stretches of bank that those fish are keying on or backwaters. And then once I find them, that's when I'll slow down and maybe throw your drive Gacinko or, or a worm and uh, kind of pick it apart because some of these pre-spawns fish can be funny. You can throw too far to the left or right of them, two or three foot, and they not bite. So sometimes really slowing down your presentation can really help in this pre-spawn time of year, for me at least. Is there some particular baits that you feel like will help you enable uh, that slower methodical presentation or that that higher speed presentation? Or do you still kind of utilize the same things but just basically kill the trolling motor back? You know, I'll go as far as power pulling down and fan casting and say if I'm on a flat that they're pulling up on. And, you know, there'll be times where I won't even pick my poles up for 10 minutes and I'll just be casting around the clock. I like a Cinco this time of year. I even like a swimming Cinco. And what I'll do is, depending on how the fish are reacting to it, if they're wanting it really slow, I'll put a tiniest weight I can put on there, a one-eighth type weight with that swimming Cinco so I can reel it slow if they want it faster. Then I can up my weight to, you know, a three-eighths even. Something I can reel a lot quicker. But uh, pre-spawn fish are always kind of funny. Kind of have to let them tell you how they want their bait. Uh, each day is different. Some days you got a warmer day where the sun's beaming down and warming that water up. They get real active and, you know, feeling it. They're ready to do their thing. But some days it's kind of cloudy and overcast and it's not as warm. But they're still up there in the pre-spawn in their staging spot. They may not want it as quick. So uh, you kind of really have to let the fish tell you how they want it this time of year. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, that leads me to kind of a thought, Brock. Uh, a challenge for a lot of anglers is is breaking down a body of water. So, you know, when you are approaching, whether you're on your way there or, or once you get to the lake, curious to kind of dive into your psyche on how you do that. Are you going to pick a particular section of the fishery do you try and cover the whole thing and then also if you could just talk just a bit on is that something that you're doing on your way there or is that more of an on the fly calling an audible after you launch the boat and kind of get a feel for what's going on you know that's kind of the reason why i like to go pre-fish or scout a lake if i've never been there before off limits you know all of our lakes go off limits four weeks prior to our first day of practice 
And if I've never been there, I want to go and see the whole lake, not necessarily fish, but just see it and have in my mind what I can expect to see when I come back in a month. And uh, to tell somebody to try to break down a whole lake in two and a half days, that's nearly impossible. So the main thing I try to do when I go to a place is catch them the way I want to catch them or I'm comfortable catching them. I don't want to go to a lake and try to catch them tight line or, you know, uh, some way I'm not familiar with or mm-hmm. very comfortable with. You know, I'm not a big jerk bait thrower because here in Mississippi, you know, all our waters for the most part is too dirty to throw a jerk digging, bait well. Digging in the dirt. <laughs> I travel, yeah. I travel with one of the best jerk bait throwers on the planet and uh, we'll go to a lake and he's catching them jerking. Well, just because he's catching them jerking don't mean everybody else can catch them jerking. You know, he's just that good at it. But if he's out there and he's really catching them, then, you know, that'll give me the confidence to, hey, let's try it, picking up a jerk bait and throwing it in a while. But, you know, the main thing I try to do is catch them away. I'm comfortable catching them and confident in catching them everywhere I go. Uh, not necessarily the same way every lake, but just for me, I I love a chatterbait everywhere I go. I got a chatterbait tied on. And I think every tournament I had last year, I've weighed at least one fish on a chatterbait, even up north. So it's just one of them deals where I try to catch them the way I'm most comfortable. And that's a big deal is having confidence in what you're doing when you're on the water. Absolutely. Talking about early spring and pressure, you know, you get into some areas of the lake that, you know, they just look right and the fish just use them consistently and they become community areas or just areas that, you know, for a particular spring, the fish just are traveling that ditch or that drain into this XYZ backwater somewhere. And, you know, it starts getting a lot of pressure. Are you typically an angler that tries to shy away from pressure? areas in the spring or if you know it's gonna go down there do you just deal with the crowds and kind of fish within them you know it really depends on the size of field i'm fishing up against for instance if i'm fishing an open and it's got 225 boats pretty good chance you're not gonna find something and have it completely to yourself (laughs) you know with that many boats Uh, if i'm fishing the elites and there's only 90 or 95 boats Those guys are the best in the world, and you're not going to find anything and have it to yourself, but you're not going to be sharing it with eight or ten guys, chances are, Uh, especially on a big body of water. You know, 95 boats isn't a lot if we're on a big body of water. But so to speak, in the opens, you know, one thing I try to do in the opens, and I heard Greg Hackney say this one time. He said, you know, if you find the best thing on the lake, you know, you're not going to be able to maximize it potential when you're sharing it with two or three other guys. But if you can find something that's not very good and maximize the potential of it, you can have a really good tournament that way. And it really started making sense to me a couple of years ago, you know, letting that sink in. And that's what I started doing in the opens last year. Uh, For instance, on Grand Lake in October, you know, 200 something boats on Grand Lake is a lot. I mean, you can't have a stretch of docks and nobody has to fish (laughs) (laughs) so you and five other boats got a stretch of docks right (laughs) yeah so what i literally started doing was running down the lake looking for the ugliest bank possible that nobody else would touch and uh i ended up i think i finished fifth and that open and that's all i did was making the ugliest stuff on the lake work (laughs) and uh it just so happened it worked out that time so there's different you know answers to that question there's going to be times where you got to fish those pressured areas. You know, the fish are grouped up and that's where they're at. And uh, that's when I try to get a little more finessey with them, whether it's a wacky rig or a Nico rig or a drop shot, something to kind of just 
make it work for that event and yeah. to survive. You bring up a good point there. And quickly before Kurt takes us to the listener question, I, I do want to throw this out there on, on the pressure topic, Brock. Uh, when you do find yourself, like you said, sometimes you can't stay away from those pressured areas. Do you kind of pay attention to what other anglers in front of you or around you are throwing and then steer away from that and, and offer something different? Or you just kind of jump right in there and not worry too much about what others are doing? Man, and this sport, Kurt can tell you, it's best sometimes you it's like you got to have blinders on (laughs) to where you're zeroed in on what you're doing and you have to tune everybody else out i mean there's been elite events st john's river for instance when on lake george before all the the eelgrass you know left (laughs) oh man my rookie year on st john's river when there was at least 40 or 50 boats on the southwest corner of lake george yeah I mean, it was mind-blowing. I mean, every five minutes, somebody was hollering and yelling because they just landed a seven- or eight-pounder they caught off the bed. And, you know, we're all in a five-acre area and can see what everybody's doing. So it can be a mental game if you let it. And the main thing you have to do is tune it out and concentrate on each and next cast that you're going to make and just worry about what you're doing and kind of tune everybody else out. Great tips right there. The one thing I tend that I'll, I'll try to do is, you know, I'm not necessarily watching what kind of techniques maybe somebody else is doing. I'm, I'm obviously going to be very similar to Brock, you know, concentrating on what works for me, but I will say, you know, particularly like if you're fishing a stretch of reeds and there's, you know, three or four other boats or, or eelgrass like that, pressure will move fish a little bit. And if you see a lot of people up inside, maybe I'll move back out a little bit. Just that change of maybe a foot or two foot of water depth and those fish maybe get pushed out from some of those pressures, then um, you can capitalize on maybe a, an extra bite or two just by doing something a little bit different than what the majority of the crowd might be doing. So um, I, I do try to try to sometimes take a peek over my shoulder and and make sure well well, this area hadn't been hit quite as bad as that one acre so let's see what's going on in this acre over here so but uh it's interesting how those dynamics play out sometimes yeah for sure brock next up our listener question segment brought to us by nitro performance bass boats if you'll take this question on a listener sent in through our instagram page benny gebs out of missouri he asks i've noticed for me f- funny this is the question <laughs> it gets we're going right back to jerk bait but I've, maybe you can give him some hank some hank information too right yeah he says i've noticed for me that jerk baits sometimes lose more fish than they catch what is something that you have done to combat losing those critical fish also how can someone who's just learning to use a jerk bait apply those tactics from a kayak? Well, uh, like I said, traveling with the best jerk baiter there is, in my opinion, he's taught me a lot the last three years. And one thing you have to do, no matter what brand jerk bait you're throwing or buying, the first thing you do when you take it out the box is change the hooks. Put some hooks on that you're confident in and comfortable in. And you kind of have to be careful changing the hooks out on the jerk bait because it can change the action it can change the way that bait suspends some guys will just change the back two hooks or the back hook and the front hook and leave the middle hook you kind of have to play with it and one thing i like to do is play with the jerk baits in the swimming pool where i can see how changing a hook may affect you know whether it's the size of the hook 
the brand even. I mean, it's just there's a lot of things that can change that jerkbait's action. And uh, there's sometimes some of these fish, they want that jerkbait where it's sitting up when it's paused. There's some of them that you sometimes fish, they want it pointed down. Playing with those jerk baits in the swimming pool, you see how that makes that bait react to each adjustment. So you're able to know when you're on the water. Okay, well, they don't want it this way. Let me try it the other way. Let me try it with this bait sitting pointed up or slowly sinking backwards. So jerk bait's a real funny thing to play with. And uh, changing the hooks out is a real key. And also the rod. There's some jerk baits that are light enough that I'll throw them on the medium rod. But if I'm throwing a heavy jerk bait like an old rogue, I have to use a little bit beefier rod to make it have the action it needs to have, you know, like a medium heavy. So there's a lot of variables that go into jerk baits. And jerk baits, one of them high tech questions that not necessarily the Mississippi guy is going to be able to answer the best. But <laughs> those are a few of the things that I like to do when I'm playing with my jerk baits. And uh, like I said, taking mental notes of how each little hook and there's some guys that even get as funny as just changing the split rings a jerk bait's a real technical bait <laughs> yeah and don't you think brock concerning the <laughs> kayak question you know you're sitting down lower closer to the water versus standing right on the on the front deck of the boat would you maybe suggest using kind of a, a shorter rod so that you can because like you mentioned the action of the jerk bait has a lot to do with that. And if you can't, you know, if you can't get those twitches right or, or that cadence correctly, you know, if you're trying to work with a, a real long rod that you might get away with, you know, on, on the front deck of a bass boat, might be a good tip perhaps for a kayak. Yeah, you know, the bass boat guys work jerking down, of course. A kayak guy, he can't do that. So he's going to have to jerk side to side. And one thing that might be helpful is him maybe using a little bit deeper running jerk bait. So it can still kind of get that depth, even though he's jerking left and right instead of north and south, so to speak. That would be one thing I would tell him to do. Try jerk bait, a uh, little bit deeper jerk baits. That way you know you're getting a little deeper because, you know, if you're using just a regular rogue, for instance, and you're jerking side to side, well, that bait's probably only getting a foot, maybe two under the water surface. But if you use, for instance, a Mega Bass 110, a plus one, well, even though you're not jerking down, that bait's probably still able to get down four or five foot. A jerk bait's a hard bait to uh, to learn how to use, but if he's from Missouri, that's a good place to learn how to use a jerk bait, especially <laughs> yeah. this time of year. Yeah, you got that right. I'm fortunate to where I get to experience some of that myself. Well, Brock, uh, thanks for a great answer to that question sent in from Benny. And Benny, remember, we need another thing from you, and that is to simply log on to BassEdge.com, click on the Claim Your Prize tab, fill out the information and uh, as we've said many times before you are going to receive free money a gift certificate to spend on whatever you want from Midway USA where they have a huge selection of fishing products and really all things outdoors and you can get just about everything for shooting hunting and the outdoors and a continued reminder Bass Edge listeners got those uh, Midway USA gift certificates passing out to these uh, fantastic questions everyone's sending into the show so keep them coming if your question is chosen then, uh, of course, we're going to send you that gift card and just keep commenting on our Facebook, Instagram when we fire out those uh, requests for listener questions. Well, Brock, uh, certainly enjoyed you being with us on Bass Edge Radio. Wondering if you have any final thoughts as we conclude kind of this segment of the show. Uh, you know, I just appreciate you guys having me on. You know, it's that time of year where we're all kind of itching and scratching to get on the water. 
everybody's fresh out of the woods. They're ready to start fishing. And, uh, you know, here in February, some of the best times to be on the water. So uh, good luck to everybody. And, uh, you know, like I said, I enjoy being on with you guys. I appreciate it, Brock. It's certainly the time of year to catch the new PB. If there's a time of year when it's going to weigh a little bit more, (laughs) this is definitely the time of year, this pre-spawn, kind of late winter. And uh, and we look forward to watching you catch some uh, big fish out on tour this year. Uh, Thanks again for taking time to be on the show. Best of luck kicking that season off down there in Florida as well. I know that uh, I feel like you're going to have a great year, Brock. It's going to be it's going to be the one and hopefully some of those goals and aspirations that you have will be met as uh, as you've been meeting many of those over these past several years. Y'all stay tuned. Aaron and I will return with some final thoughts. Hold it right here on Bass Edge know the importance of protecting your investments so why use anything else other than the original and toughest diy keel protector for your boat megaware keel guard grinding sand abrasive rocks and concrete ramps are no match for our exclusive contoured edge and patented technology megaware keel guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour providing the longest lasting most dependable keel protection for your boat guaranteed for life developed specifically by boat builders offering the best keel protection in the industry. Also for MegaWare Keel Guard, Skeg Guard, Flex Step Pro, and Pontoon Guard. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. MegaWare Keel Guard. The PowerPole Charge Marine Power Management Station is the most advanced system of its kind available on the market. It does the work of three devices, a traditional battery charger, a charge on the run, and an emergency start system all in one compact unit. The charge lets you run your boat's accessories the way you want to run them by allowing you to monitor and control your power usage through the PowerPole app. It automatically devotes power to the batteries that need it the most for maximum efficiency. The new charge from PowerPole. Power where you need it. Power how you need it. Power when you need it. Kurt, you know, Brock mentioned a a couple different times during the interview. He doesn't really see himself kind of as winning a lot of tournaments, but consistent. And, you know, not to try and get cute with something, but the dude has has taken several second-place finishes yeah. Um, and I don't know. I think he's, I think he does pretty well. I mean, I don't know what you have to I, you classify know, as a winner, but I I think you know obviously his his key is he wants to be consistent. He he mentioned he wants to make fifteen classics. You know, there's there's not a lot of anglers can can say they've made multiple multiple classics like that. When you start getting to that double digit teenish, you know, number of classics made. So obviously that's one of his big goals, but guarantee you when he walks off a stage after watching maybe the final person weigh in that took the championship, he wants a piece of that action. I think he understands that you can't force that. So maybe mentally he's trying to back burner the fact that, you know, Hey, I'm not going to focus on the win. You've heard it over and over again that wins just happen. And and it feels like, you know, he's when when he finished a second, seconds just happen. And and when he has really, really good success, it's just a process that develops throughout it. And you he's not really forcing anything to get in that position. I feel like he's mentally in the same comfortable spot saying, Hey, look, I, I don't need to go out there and do something crazy to try to win tournaments. Winning tournaments is gonna happen if I stay 
consistent. So that's kind of my take on that. Obviously, Brock has entered a level of new consistency over the last three years, and it seems like that's been a progression in his life from all competitive aspects, taking it back from his baseball days and, and high school into college with baseball and now into his professional fishing career. So it's, yeah, it's cool to see that he understands where his, his, uh, his progression kind of place. For sure. Is. And I think it's important. And I appreciate him bringing that up because I think even as weekend anglers, recreational anglers, whether you're competing or not, it's always a competition against the fish. But the reality is, you know, the different phases, right, of being an angler and then kind of taking, jumping up to that next level, right? And, and what is that trajectory? Of course, that depends on many things, time, dollars, all of those those things play into that. But just recognizing yeah. where you're at and then being willing to take inventory to be able to put this, the things in place or taking the steps necessary to kind of get you to that next level. So certainly appreciate that. I tell you something else, Kurt, I, I quickly, I know we're running out of time here, but I, I do want to make another mention of, of Terry Batista with uh, the Bass Archives. Getting on that site just brings back so many memories. I can remember as a kid, yeah. right? All I ever wanted was a conversion van and a bass boat to go tour Dude. the country and oh, be yeah. And be an angler. Yeah. Where I grew up in Virginia, um, Kurt Lytle was running one of those like conversion type deals. And and, uh, that was a trend. The cool thing, too, about Bass Fishing Archives is – Man, there's some stuff in there that, you know, predates my time, you know, this whole thing in the late 60s and, and early 70s. I mean, I was born in 72, so I was just a little wee dude, didn't know Jack from Chinola, wasn't reading magazines and seeing those all come back and, and seeing the YouTube videos and things that there's a lot of things now that is really, you know, it was gurgitated back then as now is being regurgitated now just with some slight variations. But, uh, you know, the, the history of bass fishing, just like, you know, the history of the world takes on, you know, just reinventing itself. And, right. and while it reinvents itself, it, it reproduces what it's done in the past as well. So it's, right. it's, uh, it's fun to see that stuff. And even with some of the offshoot things that they had back those days that just didn't catch on in the world of fishing, it's neat to see where some innovative and uh, whether it's a technique or a product that, that they talk about there on Bass Fishing Archives, that was like, why would they ever even try that? Right? Exactly. I'm sure we've exactly. seen that in, in our own days as well. But yeah, great stuff. Man. Well, I can still remember, you know, it's probably been 20, 25 years ago now. Uh, you know, one of the, my highlights was when I had to pick Ray Scott up from the airport one time. And it was just he and I, we had about a 30-minute drive. And that was like, because um, he was all things bass fishing. I mean, he is the reason, the godfather, right, of the sport. And so seeing everything that's going on on Bass Archives brings back a lot of those those memories of, of why I got into the sport. But uh, unfortunately, Kurt, we are out of time. What another uh, great episode. And uh, just want to encourage everybody to send in those listener questions for the uh, Midway USA gift card. If your question is chosen, be sure to stay up on all things Bass Edge through BassEdge.com or our social media platform. But uh, it'll be March 1st, next time that we get together. So wishing everyone a very nice couple weeks here. And Kurt, in the meantime, have fun, stay safe, and look forward to joining the mic with you again here in a couple weeks. So for Kurt Dove, I am Aaron Martin. So long, everybody. We'll see you next time. is presented by MegaWare KeelGuard. For more information on Bass Edge or to shop at the Bass Edge online store, visit BassEdge.com and be sure to join Kurt Dove and Aaron Martin right here on another episode of The Edge. Brought to you in part by Nitro Boats, Lucas Oil, ProtectTheHarvest.com, Midway USA, Mercury Marine, 
PowerPole and Transport Graphics.